Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, released July 5th, 2019, titled, If God Exists, He Wouldn't Be Hidden. What are the kinds of things that you're struggling with as a believer? And the hiddenness of God is almost always part of the response that I get. I think that's entirely appropriate. At the end of the day, it's the hiddenness of God that prevents most from believing. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, tap on the subscribe button so you can be notified when new science, theology, and news videos arrive. Welcome to Cold Case Christianity. My name is Jay Warner Wallace. Okay, uh, we're going to continue answering um, the objections that are usually leveled against Christianity. I definitely know who you are, Detective Wallace. You're the former cold case detective who has leveraged that gimmick into a Christian book empire. When I tell someone I doubt Christianity, your name constantly comes up as a top apologist. And we call these responses quick shot responses. Quick shots are simply uh, brief, rhetorically powerful ways to hopefully continue conversations even when you've hit an obstacle that's been offered by somebody who's simply offering an objection. That's great. I love these conversations. And if the goal is to continue conversations, it makes sense that someone like me would make some videos that offer brief, rhetorical, powerful ways that a skeptic is likely to respond to these kind of boilerplate template paragraphs. Please watch my video, consider these kind of responses you might get, then think about how you'd answer mine two steps down the road. We wanted to offer you something that you could either say back... It really shouldn't be about having something to say back. It should always be about looking critically at your own position in light of the best arguments against your position, and reevaluating your position when new thoughts or information come your way. Just as cheating on a test is unlikely to help you actually learn the subject, Copying and pasting Wallace's paragraphs isn't going to help you determine the truth for yourself. Look, if you wanted to cheat, I suppose you could cut and paste these into your social media. No, don't do that. To find these, we have got them listed uh, in our uh, Cold Case Christianity app. But of course you do. Today's response is to the objection that if God exists, he wouldn't be so hidden. Why would he be so hidden? I mean, it sure looks like he doesn't exist. Isn't that a better inference than he's just hiding from us? I mean, even the inference that he's hiding from us makes a big assumption that God exists at all. But for the sake of this discussion, we do want to focus on the claim that a God exists who also wants to have a personal relationship with people. Since so many people see no reason to think that a God exists, let alone have a relationship with him, what can be said about this? So here's the first way I might respond to this objection. Here we go. Well, I get it. The objection is that he appears to be hidden, and I, I can't help but agree with that. But if you consider the notion that God might appear hidden for a reason... It's entirely possible that there is a deity out there who is hidden from me for good reasons, bad reasons, or no reasons at all. But such reasons would have literally no impact on the fact that the deity remains hidden from me. A deity who wants to be hidden is entirely indistinguishable from a deity that does not exist. So why would I pretend to know what I cannot know? Let me give you an example. Okay. Even you and I, as mere humans, we understand the nature of true love in the sense that we know that it cannot be forced. You know, you cannot coerce true love. Mere affirmation of God's existence simply does not necessitate coerced love or obedience. 
There are examples in the Bible. Satan, the demons, Adam, Eve, Moses, Peter, who all had absolute physical interactions with God that would leave them completely certain of the existence of God. And yet, all of these beings were able to disobey God, rebel against God, and outright reject this God that they knew existed. Clearly, God is capable of giving us full, unquestioned awareness of his existence without forcing us to love him. This objection has no foundation. It's a little silly. We love our kids and we want them to love us back, but if we force them to love us... All right, we can see where this analogy is going. And in order for it to be apt, the hypothetical kids would have to have never met their parents and have no assurances at all that they are alive. If somehow that was even possible, I'm not even sure how you would do that, but I suppose you could deny them privileges, you could threaten them in some way. But if you even tried to force them to love us, you know that would not be true love. It would just be basically coercion. It would be a disingenuous, coerced response. Are you saying that God's only options are tying us to the bed, forcing us to love him under threat of breaking our legs? Hmm, you know, that does actually sound like the message of Christianity. Or remaining a purely secret admirer? Is it reasonable for me to expect someone to love me when I've never introduced myself to them? Am I reasonable in saying that the person who's never met me has rejected me? Is my expectation of a loving relationship with the person who doesn't know me any more realistic if I just anonymously like a few of her social media posts? Or, if I wanted someone to accept or reject me willingly, would I need to at very least introduce myself to that person so they can evaluate their opinion of me with concrete information? As we've discussed, there's a lot of room for a hypothetical God to operate somewhere between we've never met and I'm forcing you to love me. And you want more than that from your kids. You want them to truly love you. Look, in a similar way, when we give our kids direction and then we ask them to accept the guidance, right, as a reflection of their love for us, at some point you have to step away and give them the freedom to respond or actually the freedom to rebel. Well, have you ever considered the fact that God may remain hidden, at least to some degree? I'm not saying this is the entire answer, but at least this is part of the answer. He's going to remain hidden to allow us the freedom to respond, but to respond from a position of love rather than a position of fear. It's entirely possible for God to make his existence known plainly to us without being a constant course of presence. If the Bible is true, this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God was with Adam and Eve some of the time, interacting directly and plainly, but at least gave the appearance of not being with them at other times, giving Adam and Eve the freedom to break his only rule while simultaneously having unquestionable direct evidence of God's existence. God did it for some without violating free will, so he can do it for all. Again, a non-theist like myself is not looking for God to be present at every moment in every place. We are looking for God to be evidentially evident. If he is a God who wants relationships with humans, undeniably existent seems like the bare minimum. When I see that um, somebody has asked a question of me on Twitter or Facebook and they'll say, you know, why is God so hidden? Before I can even answer, another believer will hop on and answer the question before I can. And often what happens is that other believers um, will hop on and say, well, he's not hidden. God's not hidden. He's, it's clear that God's present, and we see this also in Scripture in Romans 1, right? That no one has an excuse because the evidence for God is seen in the, the creation, and so that no one has an excuse to deny the Creator. So I, I, get, I get that. I get that Wallace is talking to Christians here, but if you're a Christian watching this, might I recommend my video, Never Use Romans 1.20 with a Non-Believer? While the verse may be very comforting to you, it puts the Bible in direct conflict with the one and only thing that any human can be certain of, their own thoughts. That's a tough contest for the Bible to win. 
maybe keep that verse to yourself if you'd like to win souls. Well, why is it that some of us as believers can live our whole life and feel like God is hidden, and some of us can live our whole life and feel like he's at every single corner? And I'm always, I'll be honest with you, I have been suspicious in the past of people who seem like they are hearing God's voice consistently, they see his handiwork in the lives of their kids, I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? Wait, Jay, why do you assume there's something wrong with you? Why don't you at least consider that maybe something is wrong with them? Why is it that they are seeing God everywhere when you are not? Even if God exists, it is possible that these people are a little too eager, too prone to looking for patterns and supernatural involvement where simply none exists. What am I missing here? Am I not even, maybe I'm not the kind of Christian I ought to be. I mean, how many times have you felt that way because you've known somebody who seems to not even consider this to be a valuable objection? This isn't an objection that's meant to cause a believer to doubt but is rather an honest expression of the perspective of a non-believer. Wallace just admitted that he doesn't see God in as many places as some other Christians do. If you want to have a meaningful dialogue with a non-believer, at least acknowledge that there seems to be some kind of spectrum of God perception ability. If you don't have enough empathy to imagine the perspective of someone who finds God hidden, then maybe complex conversations aren't for you. If you're saying that you think that God, if God exists, why is he so hidden? One way to respond to that, have you actually been looking for evidence for God's existence? And if so, can you just tell me where you've been looking? In science, in the Bible, in textual criticism, in history, in philosophy, in archaeology, and in books like yours, J. Warner Wallace, and in the works of much more serious and scholarly theologians and apologists. I even looked at the trees. More importantly, I sought God on my knees, begging and pleading with tears for the hidden God to reveal himself to restore my faith, all with no answer. That's where, what did I miss? The evidence actually abounds, if we're sensitive to it. Evidence should be evidence, regardless of the predisposition or sensitivity of the hearer. In fact, that's what we need evidence for, to convince us of things we don't already believe. If evidence is convincing only when it supports a conclusion we already have, we'd never need it. For example, the best explanation for the information that we find in DNA, and remember the genetic code, is information. And the best explanation for information is always intelligence. Well, calling our gene sequences code or information are merely analogies, and in great need of clarification of terms before making such bold statements. I mean, in one way, every rock contains complex information in its physical properties. It stores the values of a unique length, height, width, weight, density, shape, chemical composition, and so on and so on. The rock physically stores this information, but does that imply that any intelligence was involved in the current state of the rock? Whether DNA can appropriately be called information is an ongoing semantic argument even in the genetics community. So either of us declaring anything here is going to be too simplistic to be useful. But with dozens of mutations in every individual conceived, we see the processes involved and are not staggered by them. The best explanation, for example, for the beginning of the universe... Because one can posit something infinitely great in every way necessary, doesn't mean that's the best explanation. Such a thing would certainly be a sufficient explanation. But by explaining everything, it would actually explain nothing. This is the reason that all scientists, even the most devoutly religious, adopt something called methodological naturalism in their research. They don't include supernatural hypotheses in their study, because those can't be studied in any meaningful way. Maybe there's a god holding all the atoms together, but that doesn't teach us anything useful about atoms that we can apply to our lives, society, research, or technology. 
No, the best explanation for anything is the explanation that has predictive power. The explanation that allows us to calculate future events or anticipate future discoveries. That's how we know that one explanation is better than another. If the universe begins and all space, time, and matter comes into existence, we need an all-powerful, non-spatial, non-material, non-temporal cause to explain. Well, now Wallace is just making giant unwarranted leaps. First, while most accept that our particular instantiation of space-time had a start point at the Big Bang, that all matter came into existence, isn't part of the Big Bang model. Our particular universe's matter and energy are thought to have been in a singularity before that, but we don't even know if before time is even a coherent concept. Even for those who grant the notion of causation, they don't speak at all in terms of all-powerful, we need only a sufficient cause. A snowball that causes an avalanche needn't be more powerful than the avalanche. Non-spatial, non-temporal merely means anything outside our space-time reference. And the singularity was certainly material, or at least energy, so to rule out material causes is another unwarranted assertion. Again, God did it isn't an explanation at all, let alone the best one. See my video on the Kalam cosmological argument if the details interest you. The best explanation also for transcendent objective moral laws and moral obligations? There are no transcendent moral laws or obligations. Humans happen to coalesce on some common values and assessment of actions because we're all biologically wired to want to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. And because we're a social species, that includes strategies involving empathy. No other factor is needed to explain it. We know what pleasure and pain feel like, so we guess what pleasure and pain is like for others. Not to repeat myself too much, but morality is a complex topic, so see my Argument for Morality video if you want to hear more. You're going to need a transcendent, objective, and personal moral law giver. Maybe there's a god, maybe there isn't. But we don't need one to explain the reasons why people behave like they do. The, the, the god's existence is the best inference from the evidence, even though god can't be physically seen. Don't make the mistake of thinking that divine hiddenness is just about god not being physically visible. There are forces like wind, gravity, radiation, or viruses that had sufficient evidence to accept long before methods of visualizing them came to be. There are many potential ways God could demonstrate himself without donning a bushy beard. It's kind of like when we work a suspect, right? In the sense that that suspect's not at the crime scene anymore, but we've got a lot of evidence that points to who that suspect might be. And most importantly, plenty of prior examples of crime scenes where a criminal was involved. By using these priors, you can make inferences about other crime scenes. I'm guessing that Wallace has never gone to a district attorney asking to convict an angel, demon, or ghost. So my question is, have you been looking in these areas, areas of science, areas of, of cosmology, of the study of mind and free agency and moral truths? I have, very much. Or have you really attributed all those aspects of our universe to something other than God? Well, on many of these things, we can absolutely currently identify sufficient natural explanations. On others, natural hypotheses have partial answers, even though some of the details fall into the realms of things we don't yet know. But pretending that God did it is somehow a more honest answer than we don't yet know is a fallacy. Creating a God of the gaps that recedes further and further into the background the more we learn. If we're saying that God is hidden, well, the evidence for God is not hidden. No, the problem with what you call evidence for God is not that it's hidden, it's that it's unconvincing. It seems mostly to be an argument from incredulity. Complex things exist, and I don't see what else it could be, so God. That's not how evidence would work in a courtroom, Mr. Wallace. The evidence would need to point uniquely to the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. Not just vague assertions and a lack of another suspect. Okay, there's information in DNA, but I would rather believe that that somehow developed through just physical processes of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. It has nothing to do with what we'd rather believe. 
and everything to do with what we have sufficient evidence for. And so it's a matter of us deciding, are we simply attributing the things that we should have seen clearly as evidence for God? Are we just doing our best to take God out of it and find a way to explain those without God? Are you attempting to psychoanalyze the non-believer? Assuming something about their thought processes and motives that you could not possibly know? I might just as easily ask, are you so desperately wanting God to be true that you're just doing your best to stick gods into things where he's not necessary? Equally valid question, right? So there will be evidence for God's existence in deism, but you would see nothing that would give you any inclination he cares about you today. An excellent point. We're trying to determine why a God who purports to want a relationship with people would remain hidden from said people. Uh, sometimes I think we miss the activity of God because we just aren't open to seeing it. It's also possible that what is attributed to God is a ploy of the human brain that evolved to specialize in pattern finding and agency making, traits that were survival advantages even when it leads to false positives. The early man who concluded that the rustling of the bushes was a predator lived to see another day even if there was no predator at all. How many times has something incredibly unlikely occurred, right? And we are not going to say, well, that God was involved in that. Instead, we just attribute it to chance. If you're talking about chance, you're starting to get into probabilities and actual numbers rather than a rhetorical question like this one. But if this is the kind of analysis you're looking for, it would be good to qualify what you mean by incredibly unlikely. Is that a 1% chance? 1 in a 1,000? 1 in a million? If there's something that's a 1 in a million chance of happening to someone today... Due to our massive population, that means we'd expect that thing to actually happen to 7,500 people today. That's the way chance works. Rare things are rare, but they happen constantly. Uh, uh, happy accident. Oh, he was lucky. These are cultural expressions that if you weren't a Christian, you might find yourself using, right? Because you weren't raised of the sense or you, weren't, you don't have eyes that are sensitive to the work of God in your life. Uh, what mechanism do eyes that are sensitive to the work of God operate? How many miraculous cures, for example, occur and then we just say, oh yeah, he wasn't really cured miraculously. He was probably just misdiagnosed. How many times is a cure attributed to something supernatural when it was really the natural healing processes of the body or medical intervention? Why is it that all of these miracle healings are of the same type as non-miraculous healings? Where are the miracles that regrow limbs of amputees? Things that have no natural precedent. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals over the past number of years, and I've taken it upon myself to talk to medical staff about miracles. The common story that I hear is that medical staff put stock in the placebo effect of anything that keeps a patient optimistic. So, if a patient wants to think something routine is actually from God, the staff doesn't jump in to correct them. There's definitely some level of over-attribution of the supernatural happening. Again, the point is, how can we know the difference? What is the test? If it's purely our feelings and what we want to be true, is that a good way of knowing? How many unimaginable near accidents or close calls do we just chalk up as, well, he was lucky? Well, that's a good question. Does survival of near accidents actually happen at some unexpectedly unaccounted for high rate? Or is it happening at the expected rate? Does it somehow count as something more supernatural than luck when it happens to us? This would be a form of confirmation bias. The phenomenon where people better remember or put more emphasis on outcomes that affirm our ideas and forget or put less weight on outcomes that go against it. What would be the test to determine if an outcome was chance versus supernatural intervention? Is it supernatural when it's favorable and chance when unfavorable? Is God equally communicating to us through things we callously attribute as bad luck? See, I think God often shows himself to us in supernatural ways, but, but we simply fail or maybe even willfully refuse to see it that way. Even if I'm refusing to see, you who can see should be able to point it out to me, right? 
Eventually, your consistent methods of pointing it out should change my mind or at least make me look silly for doubting. Are you willing to set aside, if just for a second, your bias against supernatural explanations? Done. Because if you could do that, if you could just set aside your bias, your presuppositions against God's activity, if you could just do that long enough, you would see a bunch of stuff that I think could very reasonably be attributed to the hand of God. If one wants to posit a supernatural intervener, then literally anything, good or bad, mundane or special, could reasonably be attributed to the hand of God. But we don't accept all ideas that are reasonable. We accept ideas when they present sufficient evidence. If you believed everything that was merely reasonable, you'd have to carry around a lot of false beliefs including ones that contradict each other. And these events that you used to attribute to chance, or to luck, or to good fortune. So, good things are God, and bad things are luck. Is it just me, or is that the definition of confirmation bias? Can you see how that might be true? Can you see how that might be uh, available to you, how that might make sense? It might make sense, but does it have explanatory power? Predictive power? Evidence? Does it somehow make more sense than alternative ideas like universal karma or watchful fairy godmothers? And there were, have been times when I have not been as sensitive to God's interaction, uh, even to, to his voice that's being offered to me either through the pages of scripture or through the advice of friends. Why would you not invoke Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest explanation is best, and just attribute those interactions to reading and talking to a person? Is reading and talking the level of things that we're supposed to think rises to the level of needing a god? I've just taken something and pridefully thought, well, I, I earned that. I did that. I was in control of that. I'm the one who made that happen. When in fact, if I was more sensitive to... Wallace never does finish this sentence, but it's entirely possible that we at times may not be realistic with ourselves about the level of control we have in a situation, for better or worse. But realize that says nothing at all about the involvement of something supernatural in the situation then why wouldn't you start to open yourself up to the possibility, even reasonable inference, that the stuff you've been attributing to luck and to chance might actually be attributable to a divine being? Again, Occam's razor. Simplest explanation tends to be true. If chance is a sufficient explanation for something, why would you layer on the idea of something supernatural intervening when there happens to be a positive outcome? It's bad logic bad science, and bad philosophy. Is it that we're in a universe in which God's laws are responsible for this, or has God intervened? How do you know where the difference is? That is exactly the right question. How can a person tell the difference between events that are explainable entirely by the laws of nature and events where a supernatural force has intervened? Is there a test? How can one know? How can two devout Christians come to a different answer about the same event? It's the lack of any differentiator that is part of the hiddenness of God. Attributing credit to God is, at best, a guessing game. At worst, it is entirely creating agency where there is none. That is always the challenge for us as believers. But sometimes I refuse to see God's intervention because I'm just not willing to see it. And that's a lot of it. I mean, I think that the world is full of things we were say are crazy lucky. Is that roughly the same number of things that are crazy unlucky? Is this a bell curve? Have I said the phrase confirmation bias too many times for one video? There are many uh, examples of people who were cured unexplainably. Are there though? Where's the documentation of this? I've tried to investigate as many of these as I'm presented with, and they've always come up short of cured or unexplainable. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm kind of staggered at the utter lack of documentation if it does. If there are many examples, please point them out. 
one with an amputee regrowing a limb would be great. Okay, it's not explainable because it's just dumb luck and you can't explain dumb luck, or is it unexplainable because it's from the hand of God? Let's say I grant you these cures you speak of are unexplainable right now. The only inference we can make from this is that they are unexplained. Claiming God did it rather than we don't know is falling into the God of the gaps trap, a logical fallacy unfortunately called the argument from ignorance. It doesn't mean the person is ignorant, it's just arguing from insufficient data. When we argue that God is hidden, it might just be that we are hiding from God. But what about those people, like me, who aren't hiding from God at all? Who legitimately want to know if he exists and have sought for him everywhere suggested? Is it fair to say that the failure is mine for not looking? Or is God simply the all-time hide-and-seek champion of the world? <laughs>